It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Since the middle of chapter 4 of Hebrews, we've been um, building the case, or the author has, for why Jesus is greater than any other high priest. And this is something that really he spends more time on than anything else. He starts with building the case in three and a half chapters that Jesus is a a greater person than any person in Judaism. And then at the end of this letter, he's going to spend three chapters building the case that Jesus has a greater purpose for our lives than anyone else. But he spends seven chapters dealing with why Jesus is a greater high priest than any other high priest. And so he spends twice the amount of time emphasizing these aspects of things, which reveals to us that the author really wants us to understand the significance, the importance of Jesus being our great high priest and all that it does for us. And so he has built this case, a great case for why Jesus is greater than any other high priest. And now he's going to conclude his case in in chapter 10 here by doing two things. First, he's going to sum up what he has shared with us basically in two main statements. And then he's going to give us some challenging things that we should do. He's going to share with us three things that we should do in response to what Jesus, our high priest, has done for us. And the second thing he's going to do is give us a warning not to depart from Jesus, our high priest. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first thing that's kind of the summation and the challenge. And then next week, we're going to look at the warning that the author gives us. And so we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 25 of chapter 10 this morning. And in verses 19 through 21, the author really just summarizes all that he, uh, the Jesus has done for us. And in this summary, we're given two things that we've been given by Jesus, our high priest, two things that he has provided for us. And if you notice, even from the slide, those two things are right after the word having. Uh, In some of your versions, it says we have, and then boldness to enter the Holy of Holies, having a high priest over the house of God. And then in verses 22 through 25, the author gives us three things we should do in response to what Jesus has given us, three privileges that you and I have that we should take advantage of. And in the same way, those three privileges start with a particular phrase, let us. So having this and having this, let us draw near in faith, let us hold fast in hope, and let us consider one another in love. So the author has spent the last six and a half chapters building the case for why Jesus is a greater high priest than any other high priest. And now as he concludes his case, he brings a call to action. Because of what Jesus is, because of what he's done, this is now how you and I should respond to that. And he's going to give us three very significant and important things for us to do. 
And so we're going to start this morning looking at the summation, just the reminder of what Jesus has accomplished for us, and then we'll transition into how we should respond to that. And just keep in mind that he's just summing up all that he's shared in the last six and a half chapters. He, he doesn't get into details. He just kind of gives these blanket statements saying, you should remember, I just shared these things with you. And so he shares this summary in verses 19 through 21. And so let's read those verses. It says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. And so here in these verses, the author is just summing up the last six and a half chapters, and he brings it down to really two main things that he wants us to remember that Jesus, our high priest, has done for us. And the first thing the author tells us is we have boldness to enter the holiest. Speaking of the holy of holies. He's saying you and I have boldness to enter the presence of God. Now remember, the high priest under the Old Covenant, he didn't have boldness to enter the Holy of Holies. He didn't have boldness to go through the veil and come into the presence of God. Instead, he entered with fear. He entered with trembling. And so he reminds us of what we have, what we've been given, this boldness. And the reason we have boldness versus what the Old Covenant people had is because we now have the new covenant. It's because we don't enter through the blood of animals that couldn't take away sin. We enter boldly by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way with Jesus consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So really the author is just summing up all that he shared and he spent chapters sharing about Jesus' sacrifice and how important it is and all that Jesus did through his death and his resurrection for us and how it gave us this complete access to the new covenant and all the blessings of the new covenant for you and I. And we don't enter the presence of God with the blood of animals, we enter it with the blood of Jesus. Now the veil... The veil separated people from the presence of God. It was there to separate the holy place from the holy of holies. And only the high priest once a year could go past the veil into the presence of God. And we noticed something before when we were looking at Jesus' death, that the moment that he died, God did something very significant. He ripped the veil from top to bottom. This veil that separated people from the presence of God was ripped and it was symbolic to say, hey, now access to me is available. Now this barrier that has kept you from me is no longer there. Why? Because the thing ultimately keeping us from God wasn't a veil, it was our sin. And Jesus dealt with our sin on the cross and so God tears the veil saying, hey, now you can have this bold access. Anyone can come, not just the high priest, anyone can come and have this privilege access to me. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, For believers, the veil is not rolled up, but rent. The veil was not unhooked and carefully folded up and put away so that it might be put in its place at some future time. Oh no. But the divine hand took it and rent it from top to bottom. It can never be hung again. That is impossible. Between those who are in Christ Jesus and the great God, there will never be another separation. 
And I love that picture of like, you know what, the high priest didn't just kind of take it down, fold it up and say, oh, maybe next year we'll put the veil back up. No, God ripped it in half, this picture of it's done. In my mind, access to me is now full and complete through Jesus Christ. And so the first thing the author tells us we have is this boldness to enter into the presence of God. And that boldness isn't in you, it's not in me, it's in Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. His death and the power of His resurrection. And so you and I can come boldly into God's presence at any time we want because Jesus has dealt with completely the thing that kept us from God's presence, which is our sin. Now, the second thing the author tells us you and I have is a high priest over the house of God. Now, here he's just reminding us once again of Jesus, our high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, the fact that he is the high priest over the house of God in the heavenly tabernacle, not the earthly tabernacle, and all the things that he shared that goes with that, that Jesus is the one who makes it possible for us to have this total access to God, the blessings from God. He is our advocate before God. He is the one over the house of God to give us access that we too one day will dwell in the house of God in heaven. And so the author sums up all he's been saying about Jesus, our great high priest, by reminding us of these two things that you have on the screen. We have bold access to God. And we have all the blessings of God. It kind of just sums up so much of what he's been sharing in the last six and a half chapters. Here's just like, here's the heart of it. Jesus has given us this bold access that we could never have under the old covenant and all the blessings of God that you never received under the old covenant. And since Jesus has done this, since he has given us this bold access, since he has given us all the blessings of God, since he's provided these amazing things, There are three ways that you and I should respond to that. And the first way that we should respond is in verse 22, which says this. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Since Jesus, our high priest, has given us this bold access to enter God's presence, since he has given us all the blessings of God, our first response to that should be to draw near to God. I mean, what an amazing privilege that Jesus has given us. He's like, here, access is available. The high priest one time a year had this access, but not in the same way. You have this access where you can boldly come at any time into the presence of God. And so take advantage of it. Draw near to the one who now you have access to through Jesus Christ. Now you see this amazing access, it really does you no good if you don't draw near to it. It's like, here, here's the Holy of Holies. Come join me. Uh, No, I'm going to keep my distance. You know, I I don't want to go in there. I don't want to draw near to you. It's God saying, I'm available. My presence, come into it. It's available. But yet, you know, we have to draw near in order to benefit from it. And when we don't, we miss out on one of the greatest privileges that Jesus, our high priest, has given to us. 
Now, the way that the the Greek word translated draw near is used, it's speaking of a continual drawing near. It's not saying, you know, just draw near once and that's sufficient or or maybe two or three times. No, this should be a continual thing that access is continually available. And so you need to continually make a choice to draw near into the presence of God. Now, one of the biggest things that keeps us from drawing near to God is when we sin. When we sin, our our response is is typically not one of, oh, I want to get close to you, God. I want to draw near to you, God. When we sin, our typical response is, I want to hide from you. I I, I want to avoid you. I, I want to go somewhere else where you're not. And you know what? This isn't something new. The very first sin that was ever committed, the first sin by Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden, that was their initial response to their sin as well. We're told in Genesis 3.8, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So right after Adam and Eve sinned, their their first initial response is, you know, I'm going to hide from God. Not, hey, God, I hear your voice. Hey, let's hang out. I'm going to draw near to you. Their first initial response was, we've done something wrong, and we want to hide ourselves. We want to distance ourselves. We want to get away from God. This is so often our response. We sin, and instead of what we need the most, drawing near to God, seeking forgiveness from God, getting back into that fellowship with God, I can't be near Him. I don't even want to be near Him. I'm not worthy to be near Him. Well, yeah, we're not. But you know what? What Jesus done has given us access anyway. And I think this is why the author and what he tells us we need to do, the, the way that he tells us to draw near right after this is so important. So he gives us this wonderful truth of, hey, you have the ability, so draw near. But then he says, do it this way. And I think this breaks down a lot of the the, the problems that we have in coming near to God. Notice what he says. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So here the author is telling us four ways that you and I should draw near to God. Four ways that we should approach the presence of God. And the first way we should draw near is with a true heart. Now, some of your translations say sincere heart. You see, this Greek word translated true means to uh, that which is sincere, genuine, and true without hypocrisy, without pretending. And so when you and I draw near to God, He wants us to draw near in sincerity. Just be genuine and real. You know, just come to God with where you're really at, with what you've really done, with just, here, this is my sin, this is what I've done. Just come in sincerity and truth. Don't try to hide it. Don't try to pretend you didn't sin. Just be open. It's not like you can hide your sin from God anyway. I look back at my life and just the foolishness of like, oh, God's not going to know. He knows everything I already did, so why am I just not willing to say, you know what, (laughs) you already know, I'm just going to be real and open, this is where I'm at, this is what I've done, and I'm just going to approach God that way. The second way we should draw near to God is in full assurance of faith. We need to draw near with a full assurance that our sins have been completely dealt with at the cross. And we've got to trust that in faith. 
You know, this is something that's, you know, the, the barriers we sin and we think, oh, maybe God doesn't want me right now. Maybe he's not going to allow me into his presence because of what I've done. And we at that moment just have to have that full assurance, put our faith in the fact that, no, what Jesus did on the cross not only paid for my past sins, but also my present sins and even the future sins that I'm going to commit. And so I can come into his presence with this full assurance of faith in the fact that he has paid the penalty for my sin. We just got to trust that what God says about his forgiveness of our sin is true. We got to trust that we do have complete access no matter what we have done. The third way we should draw near to God is by having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Yeah, this is kind of that, that picture of the, the high priest coming in and sprinkling blood on the mercy seat. And what a great picture for us because, you know, one of our problems is that guilt. The guilty conscience gets us and, and God just wants us to know, you know what, Jesus has dealt with that. You don't have to allow that to try to, to keep you from me. I've paid for your sin. Your hearts have been sprinkled from an evil conscience. You know, come to me. Don't allow your emotion or feeling or anything of, of unworthiness or whatever keep you. I've made the way possible. I've dealt with what you've done. The fourth way we should draw near to God is by having our bodies washed with pure water. You know, we should come recognizing what we don't see in the mirror. We're pure. You know, we sin, we, we look at our life and we say, you know, oh, there's so much impurity, there's so many you know, things that I've been giving into, so many problems in my life. But you know what? Jesus has made it so God sees us as our sins being white as snow. There is a purity. You know, I love the symbol of baptism because there's that symbol of going into the water in our lives and our past. It's dead and buried. And as we are raised, the Bible says we have been uh, new creations. The old has passed away. Behold, all things become new. And we just got to approach God recognizing, I know I'm still sinful, but yet you see me as pure. I don't see myself that way. Uh, I see you know, what I've done. I'm ashamed of what I've done. It, it often hinders me from wanting to come into your presence, but just to realize, no, what Jesus did has purified me. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed my transgressions from me. So our sin, that's the thing that causes us not to draw near to God. And that's why we need to come with that sincerity of, hey, this is where I'm at, Lord, but I have faith that you have paid for my sin. I'm going to come, I'm going to get past the guilt, and I'm going to come knowing that I'm purified by you. And this is so important because the enemy, he loves to, to sometimes whisper, even sometimes shout, oh, you think you could ever come into God's presence after what you just did? Or after the amount of times that you just did this and you keep saying sorry and you keep doing it, you think God's really going to allow you into his presence? You think God's really going to forgive you? You think God's really going to want you? And we start to buy into that lie and think, you're right. I can't go into the presence of God after what I've done. I'm not you know, someone that God would want or would accept. And we need to recognize, no, I have complete access because what I've done is all dealt with at the cross. This is the wonderful thing about coming to the presence of the Lord. It's not based on you. It's not based on how many right things you've done and how many wrong things you've avoided. 
It's all based on the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life and did everything right, and he avoided everything wrong, and my access is completely based on his performance, not on my own. G. Campbell Morgan wrote this, This is not a call to prepare myself or to make a way for myself to God. It's simply to come, to draw near, to enter in. This I do through my great high priest, but this I may do through him without faltering and without fear. Since Jesus, our high priest, has given us this bold access to God and all the blessings of God, the first thing that you and I should do in response to that is we need to continually draw near to Jesus in faith that our sins have been paid for and that our lives have been cleansed and changed. When you truly have faith in what Jesus has done to save you, to forgive you, to cleanse you, to purify you, you know, it just gives you boldness. Boldness that I can enter in because all those barriers that my sin used to bring are gone and I can come into the presence of God and take advantage of it and draw near. But you know what? You lose faith in what Jesus has done to save you and forgive you and cleanse you and change you. All of a sudden there's like, ah, oh, I don't know if I can come to the Lord. I don't know if I can draw near to Him. I don't know if I can go into His presence because I've lost faith in the truth of what God has done for me. So draw near and draw near in faith. The second thing we should do in response to the fact that uh, Jesus has given us this bold access to God and all the blessings of God is in verse 23. It says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. So since Jesus has given us bold access, since Jesus has given us all the blessings of God, the second response that we should have to that is to hold fast. And what is it we should hold fast? The confession of our hope without wavering. The Greek word here translated hold fast means to have a firm grasp on something, to not relinquish it. Now the way the author uses this Greek word, kind of like the last Greek word, is to do it persistently. Not just to kind of hold for a little bit and then, you know, let it go. But no, hold fast and never relinquish. Hold on for the rest of your life. Now notice the author tells us to, to hold fast, to, to have a firm grasp, to not relinquish the confession of our hope. The hope the author is referring to, as we know that word, means a, a confident expectation of coming good. He's saying the hope that you and I have, the confident expectation that you and I have is our sins are forgiven. We now have a relationship with God because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. We now have the hope that when we die, we're going to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. So the author is saying we got to hold fast. we got to have a firm grasp. You can't relinquish the hope that you have in Jesus and all that's connected with it. Notice he says do this without wavering. You know, sometimes we waver in our hope instead of holding fast to our hope because of our circumstances. And when circumstances get difficult, when things in our life aren't the way that we think they should be, when we're living for Jesus and it's just not turning out right, 
All of a sudden, there's a, a moment in our life where sometimes we say, you know what, I'm not going to hold tight and hold firm to this hope. I'm going to waver and, and let it go because I'm just struggling with the fact that God would allow me to go through this and I'm dealing with this. And, um, you know, this is really what we see with the initial recipients of this letter. They're going through some horrible persecution. They're serving Jesus, they're living for Jesus, and they're being persecuted for it, and it's hard for them to hold fast to the hope. They're starting to waver in that. They're starting to think, well, maybe we should go back to Judaism. Maybe we should relinquish Jesus and and try something that will relieve us from this persecution. So circumstances can cause us to waver. But you know what? Just like the last thing, another thing that causes us to waver is just our sin. You know what, when you and I are faithless to God because we don't do what He tells us to do, we start to wonder if He's going to be faithful to us, to give us the promises, to give us the things that we have hope in. Because the reality is, in our lives, if someone is faithless to us, we have a tendency to not want to be faithful to them. We want to give them what we think they deserve. Well, you're going to be unfaithful to me, then I'll be unfaithful to you. And so we sometimes wonder, you know what, I've been faithless over and over and over again to God. He tells me to do this and do this and not do that, and and I've done those things. And so is He going to be faithful to what He's promised me? All my hope is in His promises, and is He going to be faithful to fulfill those? And this is why right after the author shares this, he, he, he gives us, a great reason why we can hold fast, why we can have a firm grasp, why we should not relinquish our hope that we have in Jesus, because notice what he says, for he who promised is faithful. He knows that's what people are thinking. Is he really going to be faithful to give me the promises that he said he would give me, especially when you look at all the things that I'm going through? All the persecution. I, mean, I would have thought that surely Jesus wouldn't have allowed me to go through this. Or look at the the sin I've done and the faithlessness in my life. Is he faithful? And the author wants us to know, absolutely. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he can't deny himself. And this is a great thing to remember. Yeah, you and I, we're faithless. We all are in that category. When we are faithless, guess what? Jesus remains faithful. Why? Because he can't deny himself. He can't deny who he is. He's faithful. That's just what he is. That's part of his nature. He can never not be faithful. And so when you are horribly faithless to him, he will still be faithful to you because it's just who he is. He cannot deny his faithfulness, and that should bring encouragement to us. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, and we sang this song earlier, For all the promises of God in Jesus are yes and in Him, amen, to the glory of God through us. All the promises of God are given to you because of your good works. All the promises of God are given to you because of how faithful you are. No, He doesn't say that. All the promises of God are in Jesus, yes. In Jesus, amen. We receive them because we're in Christ In what He has done, I don't receive them because I've been so faithful to God and I've done these things for God and now I'm worthy of the promises of God. No, none of us are worthy. We don't receive it for that. And this wonderful truth, the promises come to you because you're in Christ. It's just another one of those great blessings. 
And because of that, we should hold fast, have a firm grasp, don't relinquish the hope you have in Jesus because our hope is not based on circumstances that constantly change. It's not based on our faithfulness, which is often lacking. It's based on Jesus' faithfulness that never changes. What God promises He will do, He's going to do. And so we can hold fast. We can have a confident expectation that the coming promises of God and the present promises of God are going to happen in our life. So since Jesus, our great high priest, has given us access to God and all the blessings of God, the second thing we should do in response to that is we need to persistently, without wavering, hold firmly our hope in Jesus because He is faithful to give us what He promised. You know, when someone loses hope in lots of different things, whether it's in a relationship like a marriage or even in a team that they support, you lose hope, you have a tendency to stop living for what you had hope in. You have a tendency to start giving up. And that's just the reality of us. You know, hope is what drives us. Hope is what motivates us. And really, our greatest motivator to live for Jesus is the hope we have in Him. Not just all He has done in the past and He's doing in the present, but also all that He promises for the future. And this is why it's so important for us to persistently and without wavering hold firmly to our hope because if we lose that, man, it's hard to continue to live for Jesus, especially in the world that we're living in today. The third thing we should do in response to the fact that Jesus brings us bold access to God and all the blessings of God are in verses 24 and 25. It says this, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Well, since Jesus has given us bold access to God and all the blessings of God, the third way that you and I should respond to that is we should consider one another, spend time with one another, and exhort one another in love. The Greek word here translated consider means to direct one's whole mind on something, to carefully observe it, and to consider it closely. So the, the author's challenge to us is I want you to direct your whole mind to consider carefully and observe closely one another, referring to other believers. Really think about it and, and focus your mind and consider other believers. And he tells us, well, well what should we be focusing our, our minds on? What should we be considering concerning these believers? And it would be that we would stir up love and good works. The Greek word here translated stir up means to stimulate, sharpen, provoke a change in sight or irritate. And this word could be used in a, in a positive way or it could be used in a, a negative way. We typically use the, in our English language, irritate in more of a, a negative and we you know, think of stimulating or, or stirring up more in a positive. But you know, the, the heart of this word, really, it can be directed either way depending on the way in which we are you know, impacting the people in our lives. And I'm sure that most of us, we know real well 
and probably are guilty of stimulating and provoking and inciting and irritating someone to something negative like anger and frustration. And I'm sure all of us who are married have been guilty of that. All of us who have kids are guilty of that. You know, all of us who just have relationships in life, you know, we know how to irritate, how to, you know, just get under people's skin. And so, yeah, you can do this in a negative way. But the challenge that the author is sharing with us is we need to take time to carefully observe, to consider closely other believers in order to stir up and stimulate and sharpen and provoke a positive change to love and good works. You know, Proverbs 27, 17 kind of gives a picture of, of what this looks like. It says, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. You know, this part of that word, that definition was to sharpen. And as we kind of get together as believers and our lives rub against one another, there can be a positive sharpening. There can be a positive, as this says, you know, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. You know, we can do that for one another. As we get together, there can be a positive result of stirring up to love and good works, to stimulate, to provoke, and maybe even sometimes irritate because the person's in sin and they don't want to hear what you have to say. But you know what? It's still something we need to do for them. Larry Osborne wrote this. If you're struggling in sin, I'm here to help you. If you're defending your sin, I'm here to challenge you. And if you're setting up camp in your sin, I'm here to discipline you. You know, as we take time to carefully observe and consider closely where other believers are at, what they're going through, what they're doing, it's going to help us know how to effectively stir them up to love and good works. Because if you come across someone who's struggling in sin, then we should know, hey, I need to come alongside of them. What they need is help. What they need is encouragement to overcome the sin they're in. They're struggling. They want victory. They don't need my judgment. What they need is my help. But you know what? If you come across someone who's trying to defend their sin, they don't want to get out of their sin. They want to prove that it's okay that they're doing it. Well, then we need to recognize, hey, I'm going to have to approach this a little bit differently. Because I don't want to bring encouragement and help to someone defending their sin. Because that's not what they need. They don't need encouragement to do that. They don't need help to do that. They need to stop doing that. And so I need to challenge them. I need to help them see from the Word of God. No, this isn't something you should defend because it's sinful. It's wrong. God's Word clearly says it. And if someone's setting up camp in their sin, then once again, we need to recognize, i got to approach things differently. We might be past the challenge of what God's Word says. Maybe they're clear and they're just, you know, well, I don't care. I'm just going to set up camp. Well, maybe we need to move to something a little more confrontational. Something that, you know, brings some real challenges for change. But, you know, all of these things, they're beneficial if they're done in love. And they're done for the purpose of, I want this person to get to a place where they can do what God has. They can do the works that God has in their life, and, and they're, they're being hindered from that. John Wesley had a motto that I think kind of fits well with the challenge of these verses. He says, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Hey, if we all did that, I think we'd be in a, in a pretty good place. He understood the importance of stirring up love and good works. And I think, you know, a good challenging question for us. 
Maybe a convicting question for us. When's the last time that you carefully observed and considered closely another believer for the purpose of wanting to invest, stir them up, encourage them, help them grow, that you really prayed, that you really thought, what's this person going through and how can I come and invest? How can I come and speak into their life? How can I come alongside? How can I come and help them? You know, when we come to church, do you first take time before you even come, you know, just prayer, carefully considering, I know God, this person's probably going to be there and that person, and, and I've been talking with this person, I know what they're going through, and, and I know this person's struggling here, and that you come with this heart that says, I, I want to help, I want to invest, I want to challenge, and maybe I need to even just give a strong warning because they're trying to camp in their sin. Imagine if next Sunday each of you came here having prayed, having considered, having thought just about one person, how you could show love, how you could stir them up to love and good works. Imagine just how different the service would be. It wouldn't just be you listening to me, but you could have someone come and speak into your life, encourage you, be there for you, build you up, pray for you. You know, what a difference if each one of us did that, how we would be blessed for doing it, and how the person we did it for would be blessed, and just how much more of a blessing the whole service would be because all of us came with that heart to want to give, not just to receive. And I think that's just something as we think about church, we need to just keep that mindset. It shouldn't just be you know, a place where we sing some worship songs and listen to a message. It shouldn't just be about what we get, but it should be about what you give. God's given you gifts. He wants you to use them. He wants you to come to church with the heart that says, I want to give to others. I want to be there to not just receive, but to bless. I want to stir up others to love and good works. And one of the best ways to do that is to prayerfully consider, to really think about other people in the church, where they're at, what they're going through, and come Already prepared, like, you know, I really have this verse for them, or I just want to pray for them, or I have this encouragement of something that I went through and how God delivered me from it, or whatever it is. I'm coming to bless them. I'm coming to encourage them. I'm coming to lift them up. But, you know, in order for something like that to happen, in order for us to stir each other up to love and good works, which is such a wonderful blessing when it does occur, there's something that each of us need to make sure we don't do. And that's the next thing the author tells us at the beginning of verse 25. It says this, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, which is the manner of some. The Greek word translated forsaking means to neglect, leave behind, abandon. What the author is saying is don't neglect, don't forsake, don't leave behind, don't abandon coming together with other believers. Don't neglect coming to church on Sundays. Don't neglect your know, time of fellowship with believers throughout the week. You see, the reality is you need to be in fellowship with other believers. But it's more than that. The rest of us need your fellowship. And that's where I think so many people miss. It's like, well, I'm not going to be missed. I'm not important. No one needs me. No one needs my gifts. No one needs what I bring. And that's just not true. So not only do you need us, we need you. And when we're together, the body of Christ is functioning in the way that God has designed it to. 
You know, 2020 survey by the Pew Research Center reveals that only 58% of evangelical Christians attend church at least once a week. 58%. Out of that 58%, only 18% attend two services a week. 30% of Christians say they attend church only once a month or fewer, and 12% say they seldom attend church at all. Those are some pretty sad statistics, especially when you consider the significance and the importance of our time together as a church. And you know what? Sadly, these statistics are just getting worse and worse. We're on a decline in church attendance, not in uptake. And a lot of the problem that is there is not just with the body of Christ as a whole, but also individuals suffer a lot from this. And I think really one of the biggest problems of not having regular church attendance is it just greatly slows down spiritual growth. If you want to speed up your spiritual growth, then you need to regularly be in church, regularly be in a place where you're going to have opportunities to use your gifts, opportunities to serve and grow in those things, opportunities to be encouraged Opportunities to be accountable to other believers. Opportunities to have people praying for you and you praying for them. Opportunities to be taught and discipled and encouraged and built up. You know, as a pastor for many years, something I've seen, and it's just so clear, those who grow spiritually the quickest are always those who are the most regular attenders. Not just on Sunday attenders. You see a difference. You know, you got the people who always be here on Sunday, and then you'll get the people who are always on Sunday and mostly or always midweek as well, and there's just a a difference in the amount of spiritual growth that happens for those who make it a greater priority to be with other believers. And that shouldn't be surprising. They get more fellowship opportunities than others. They get more opportunities to use their gifts, more opportunities to serve, more opportunities to be taught, more opportunities to worship, more opportunities to pray, more opportunities for accountability. So if you want to increase your spiritual growth, regularly come to things that are designed specifically for spiritual growth. You know, as Christians, we're like coals in a fire. When we're together, we burn bright, we stay lit. You take one coal out of the fire and put it by itself, soon that coal's going to go out. I think in the same way, you know, you start neglecting time with other believers, try to live the, the Christian life on your own. That fire for Jesus is soon going to go out, and it's very, very difficult to really have a strong spiritual walk by yourself. Kent Hughes wrote this, It's true that a person does not have to go to church to be a Christian. He doesn't have to go home to be married either. But in both cases, if he does not, he will have a poor relationship. (laughs) I think it says it so well. I mean, how good would my relationship be with Jenny if I never went home? How good is your relationship with God going to be if you never go to the house of God with the children of God? I don't want to be around the children of God. If you don't like the children of God, then guess what? You're going to have a problem in your relationship with God who loves them so much he gave his life for them and adopted them. It's like, you know, we can't say, oh, I got this great relationship with God, but I don't want to spend any time with his children. I've heard a lot of different reasons as a pastor for why people don't regularly come to church. And most of those reasons are not very good reasons. I read an article that said, why I never take a bath. And the article takes the top 12 reasons for why people claim not to go to church. 
and then he puts it in his article of why I never take a bath. And when you read it that way, I think it just helps you see some of the foolishness of some of these reasons. And so I'm going to read this to you. Why I never take a bath. I was forced to bathe as a child. People who bathe are hypocrites. They think they're cleaner than anyone else. There are so many different kinds of soap, I can't decide which is best. It's too boring. I wash only on special occasions like Christmas and Easter. The soap makers are only after your money. The last time I bathed, someone was rude to me. I'm too dirty to get clean. I'll clog up the drain. I'll bathe only when I find a bathroom that's exactly right for me. I can watch other people bathing on television. That one's a little dodgy, but hey. I can bathe on the golf course. The bathroom is never the temperature, and I don't like the sound of the plumbing. And if you can't understand the significance of that, then I'll talk to you later. But, uh, you know, people make a, a lot of excuses for why we don't come to church. And, you know, really, most of them are all bad excuses. And so the most important thing to understand when you don't come to church is you're just going against the command that God clearly says. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You're just being disobedient to the Lord, and that should be enough of a reason to not do it. Robert Morgan wrote this, Christianity is a force for good in this world, and I believe with all my heart that when churches are healthy and are functioning as God intends, they're the most wonderful environments on earth for worshiping God, for maintaining our morale, for caring for others, for learning the truths of the Bible, for growing to be better people, for developing relationships, and for raising our families in the nurture of the Lord. I think this is a great summation of the, the wonderful blessings and benefit of the church. I fully agree with Robert Morgan in that. And you know what? You neglect coming, you miss out on those. It's like here's this place that has all these wonderful things to give and provide and for you to have opportunities to also be a part. And when you don't come, you miss out. So the author tells us, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. And then he says, well, what should we do instead? Instead of not joining together with believers, notice what he says. But exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So don't neglect time with other believers. Instead, get together with them. And don't just get together with them you know, to, to watch the Astros. Get together to exhort one another. The Greek word translated exhort means to encourage, admonish, strengthen, and build up. You know, the Christian life is hard. Uh, we can all testify to that reality, and we need other people to encourage us. If you're looking for encouragement from the world, you're not going to get it. You know, unbelievers aren't going to give you the encouragement that you truly need, encouragement in the things of the Lord. And so we need one another. We need that encouragement, that building up, that strengthening that happens as we spend time together. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt word Proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. You know, we live in a world with so much negative stuff. News, pretty much all negative. Social media becoming more and more and more negative. We're just bombarded with all this negative stuff, negative words, negative things. And how great it is when you have people in your life where you know you can go to something and you're not going to get all that negative nonsense. You're going to get someone who's building you up. Someone who's going to share something positive, something that's from the Word, something that's going to encourage you. 
that it's not corrupt words out of our mouths, but things that are necessary for edification, that it's going to impart grace to those who hear. Now, the author gives us a little bit of urgency of why we should do this. He says this, And so much more as you see the day approaching. The day that's approaching that the author is referring to is the return of Jesus Christ. He's saying there should be an urgency to gather together, an urgency to not forsake that, an urgency to build each other up, to exhort, to encourage. Why? Because Jesus' return is soon, and we want to be living our lives as much as we can for Him when He comes back. So since Jesus, our high priest, has given us bold access to God, has given us all the blessings of God, the third thing we should do in response to that is we need to regularly consider, spend time with, and exhort one another in love. You know, if every believer did this, pretty confident we would see a a significant shift in the statistics of how many people neglect church. If every believer came with this heart to consider and spend time with and exhort others in love, I can't wait to get to church. I got so many people investing in me and encouraging me and speaking life into me, and I love it. I just want to finish noting that there are three ways the author tells us to respond. And notice in these three ways, he's encouraging us in our faith and our hope in our love. Continually draw near to Jesus in faith. Persistently hold firm to our hope and regularly exhort one another in love. And just what a a great response. Here's what Jesus has done as our great high priest and we just need to have faith in it. We need to have hope in it and we need to show love to others in response to it. You know, these are great challenges things that we need to apply to our lives, and I recognize it's hard. I recognize we fall short. The great news is we have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us do this, and we also have the power of prayer. And so I just want to finish just taking a moment for us just to pray, ask the Lord to help us do this, that we wouldn't just walk away saying, yeah, those are three things I need to do, but never do them, but that He would help us apply them to our lives. Let's pray.